The Old Testament passage is 1 Kings 19, 1 to 15a. That's found on page 355 in your pew Bible. 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up, eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountains in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, went out, and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. That's our Old Testament reading. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Galatians 3. 23 through 29, that's on page 1169 in your pew Bibles. Galatians 3:23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, sorry, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God. Good morning. You've heard it a couple times uh, already, but this has really been a tough week. Um, I know for some of you more than others, uh, those of us who live streamed the synod meeting uh, put ourselves through pain that maybe we didn't need to. (laughs) Um, But man, it was painful. And some of you probably don't even know much about what we're talking about when we talk about um, synods meeting, except for what you heard in the elders' announcement and what Tony said. Um, Yeah, in case you weren't paying attention. uh, Basically, the denomination drew some very deep lines in the sand around human sexuality, um, and they did it in a really callous way. Um, And now we don't really know what will happen next for our congregation, um, and for a lot of people, there's just a ton of grief in the air, especially those people who, um, for whom the CRC has raised them, um, and now face an uncertain future with that. Um, Tony said this week that he feels betrayed. I'm sure he's not alone in that. I see some of you nodding. I feel so deeply misunderstood, um, And like people didn't even care to try to understand. I'm sure a lot of you feel that way too. Uh, It's been a really hard week. We heard at the lament service on Wednesday, just for those of you who were there, just the raw grief of some of you. Um, I was really grateful to be able to grieve that way in community, um, to be able to do that together. Um, And as Tony mentioned also, and we heard in the prayer, it is Juneteenth today, which is a celebration of the end of slavery that also brings up so much pain um, because there's so much, just such a long way to go uh, towards racial justice in this country. Uh, And all of this gets pretty overwhelming, right? And it's not even like all that we're facing. (laughs) Uh, For me, both of those topics bring up, bring to mind this like, desperation and frustration of arguing a point and getting nowhere. Um, And just being like, why don't you see? Um, I feel that same frustration about climate change. Um, It seems like it should be so easy to convince people, and yet it is not. Um, In all these spaces, it's so painful to see people being harmed and to just not be able to do anything about it. Some of you are the people who are harmed. Today's passage, though, uh, first King, from First Kings in our lectionary, I think is uh, just the perfect passage for us. Um, I didn't, I mean, I picked it out of the four, but this passage comes up every three years um, around this time, uh, but it felt like such a gift 
to stumble across it as I looked for what I was going to preach about. Um, in the passage, in 1 Kings, you heard Jezebel threatened to kill the prophet Elijah. Um, he runs from her in fear and despair and sits under this broom bush and prays, Lord, I haven't had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's just got nothing left. And if you want to know why Elijah is in this kind of despairing space, you have to go back a few chapters in 1 Kings. Um, Ahab, who is king at the time, the text says, Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And the ones before him had not been great, so things are pretty bad. Um, There's a huge drought in Israel, and the word of God comes to Elijah saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And so Elijah goes, and on his way, he learns that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, has been executing the prophets. Um, so this is like, you know, not an ideal situation for, uh, for Elijah to head right into, but he goes anyway. And when he's there, he challenges the prophets of Baal to prove that their gods were real. He asks them to call down fire from heaven, and they try. But no matter what they do, nothing happens. For an entire day, they pray and they shout, and they cut themselves with swords and spears, it says, until their blood flows, and nothing. Sorry, I need a glass of water. It's filtered. Thank you. He said it's filtered. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, okay. All right, so these prophets are bleeding, uh, and nothing is happening, (laughs) just to get back to where we were. Um, Anyway, nothing happens, and and then it's Elijah's turn, and just to like up the ante, to kind of rub it in their faces, he douses the altar with water four times until the whole thing is dripping and standing in a puddle, and he says, just a simple prayer, and fire comes down from heaven and burns up everything, even all the water, even the rocks. It's amazing. It's miraculous. What, how could they possibly doubt Yahweh now? The Israelites respond, right? They fall on their faces and they say, Yahweh is Lord. And Elijah then goes to, find, to Jezreel to find Jezebel. This is the most dangerous place for him to be. She's been killing all the prophets, but he goes because he thinks he has won. But it turns out that his victory was not quite as victorious as he thought. And that's where we pick up our reading in chapter 19. Ahab, who saw the whole thing, tells Jezebel what happened. And instead of hearing this amazing story and admitting that she was wrong and admitting the power of God, she turns and threatens Elijah, may the gods kill me if I don't kill you. And then Elijah loses it. That's when he begins his run. In the face of all of Ahab's evil and the murdered prophets, I think that Elijah thought that the proof that he offered of Yahweh's existence would fix it all, solve all the problems. The people would repent, things would change, but it doesn't work. And when he realizes it, he goes from the heights of victory to the depth of despair like that. He's a failure. 
I'm no better than my ancestors. Just kill me. And he runs, not toward danger this time, but away from it. He runs 100 miles to Beersheba, which takes him out of Judah's territory, out of Jezebel's reach. And he keeps going from there straight into the desert all the way to Mount Horeb. I think a lot of us can identify with Elijah's hopelessness, right? That like holy frustration. He has been zealous, he says. I gave it everything. He has worked hard. And it doesn't get the results he wants. And it leads him to despair. He has poured himself out, put himself in harm's way. He has spoken clearly. He's given clear illustrations of fire from heaven. And still, it's not enough. Like, I feel that anger and despair in the wake of Synod. I mean, I felt it in the wake of the RCA Synod, which I attended, uh, which is at the same time. uh, And it was much tamer than the CRC Synod. Um, I feel it every time I see someone being careless with God's creation. I feel it whenever someone says something racist and I can't convince them that it's not a good thing to say. Like, it's amazing how quickly my zeal for, like, we've got to do something can dissolve into despair just so immediately. And even if I do manage to do something great, it's still so small compared to the problems of the world, right? Like, which one should I even focus on? (laughs) We planted 28 trees on our street last year. I felt super proud of myself because I organized that and I'm bad at organizing. Uh, Like, that's great, 28 trees. It's 28 trees in the face of climate change. And they grow so slowly, like... (laughs) Like, it's great, but really, what is it, you know? And the most depressing part of it all is that Christians can't even seem to get on the same page about any of these things. Right? What seems so clear to me, so clearly part of my faith... It's just not clear to everybody. And so it's almost like we have to push against each other, which is just devastating. And you hear that despair in Elijah's complaint. He says, I have been very zealous. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. He's depressed that he couldn't fix it. He's disappointed in his people. He's scared and angry. And in it all, he loses his bearings. And you can't really blame him, right? But the complaint that he does say holds a number of half-truths. He's, not, he's kind of lost perspective. Um, he's not the only one left, actually. And not all of the Israelites have rejected God. In fact, a whole bunch of them just turned back. Um, it's actually only Jezebel who's trying to kill him. He says, like, he says, I'm no better than my ancestors, which is like a really interesting thing to say because who was asking him to be better than his ancestors? And implied in all of it, particularly when he says, I have been very zealous for you, um, implied in all of it is like, where were you when I was working so hard? 
Why didn't you fix it? He's in a state that uh, St. Ignatius calls desolation. Um, when you can't see goodness. Not in yourself, not in others, not in God. When everything looks bleak. When it's all kind of full of lies or you can only see the dark side of it. This is desolation. And when you find yourself there, Ignatius says, you just need to wait. You just wait it out. Don't make any sudden moves. No major decisions because you are not seeing clearly. Wait until you are in consolation. Wait until you can see things as they are, the good and the bad. Wait until you can see good and evil clearly. Wait until you can see yourself clearly. Wait until you can know the goodness of God in the midst of all of it. It's understandable that Elijah has lost it, I think. Like, I would imagine that finding out that the people just like you are being murdered en masse, that your own people have betrayed themselves, and that your life is in danger, that would all be quite traumatic, to say the least. A couple of commentators that I read said that Elijah was being self-pitying, which I thought that was a little harsh, considering the circumstances. <laughs> but he wasn't seeing clearly. Um, but I don't think that he was seeing clearly when he called fire down from heaven either. He seemed to think that this, that this duel would solve Israel's, Israel's problems once and for all. Like he could fix everything on his own. You know, you notice in the text, if you read so much of what Elijah does, it's like, well, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, do this. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, do this. That's not the case when he calls fire down from heaven. He just does that one on his own. George Carlin said, um, I just saw this in a meme on Facebook. It's nice that Facebook gives me sermon things. Uh, he said, inside every cynical person is a disappointed idealist. Um, I think that's Elijah. He's tipped from idealism to cynicism. I wonder when he was planning his fire from heaven stunt, if he was imagining how his zeal from God was going to shake up Israel, get them back on track. If he was imagining changing the world and fixing it all. And when he got his chance to try it out, it did make a difference. It really did. But it definitely, it was not definitive or total. And that was depressing. depressing. He's disillusioned. He's lost his way. And here is where many of us are in the wake of Synod, in the wake of Patrick Luoya, oftentimes just in the wake of our own personal failings. And sometimes those things put together is more than we can handle. Like there's 15 major issues threatening the world and the country, and I can't even seem to get out of bed on time and do my dishes. But look at how God handles Elijah. Not like the commentators who judged him as self-pitying. God is so entirely gentle with Elijah. No lectures, no advice, no stern looks, no spiritual platitudes. God doesn't even try to fix him. Or even turn him around immediately. 
God lets Elijah, even helps Elijah, to go all the way to Mount Horeb. Though that's clearly not where he is supposed to be. Elijah runs so far to get away, (laughs) asks for God to kill him, and then he just falls asleep in his despair. And what God does is send an angel to feed him. And Elijah falls asleep again after he eats the bread and drinks the water, and God sends another angel to feed him again. Like, how, how kind. I don't know if any of you have been in this pit of despair to just have someone come alongside you and nourish you. And God has given us bodies, and our bodies have needs, and sometimes the answer isn't, you should just pray more, Elijah, but actually you just need a rest and a good meal, a nap and a snack, maybe a little perspective. If you ever needed an argument for self-care in difficult times, here it is. And that's not always God's response, right? Probably because that's not always what we need. Like when Jonah ran away, he got swallowed by a fish and vomited back up where he was supposed to be. Like, but it's nice that God knows what we need, whether it's like a fish to eat or a fish to eat us. Um, <laughs> but Elijah is strengthened enough by his journey to, or by his food to continue his journey, um, which is to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is also called uh, Mount Sinai which you may recognize from many biblical stories. It is the place where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It is the place where Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God, where he received the law and saw the glory of God in person as no one else had and came down from the mountain with his face gleaming. Elijah is not just running away. He's looking for God. And don't we, too, do that when we are desperate, cry out in maybe even desperate ways, like running all the way to Mount Horeb. And again, God is gentle. God makes God's self known, asking a simple question. What are you doing here, Elijah? I know a lot of you probably know this story really well, God tells Elijah he's about to pass by, but God is not in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. God is in the gentle whisper. One translation has it, God is in the sound of sheer silence. And God has been in the wind and in the earthquake and in the fire in other parts of scripture, right? There's an earthquake when Moses was on Sinai and a pillar of fire led the Israelites out of Egypt and it's Pentecost season where we celebrate the spirit coming with the sound of rushing wind. But here, God's presence is in the silence. And the silence calls Elijah out of the cave. This miracle man who has lived by the spectacular up until now is learning now that that is not the only way that God works. God shows up in these things sometimes, but much more often God is present in the quiet, in the whisper, in the slow way of working in the world that is often even hidden. 
I like to imagine Elijah, who's been so frantic, just humming with anxiety and fear, running everywhere, now standing at the mouth of the cave, finally settled in the stillness. And, Elijah, or, and God asks Elijah the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's answer is exactly the same. For the first and second time, God asks it. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Like you'd expect something new after all the fire and wind and silence. Um, Maybe some of the not quite so true things of the first answer might have been brought into perspective. Maybe he'd admit his own fear. But no, it's exactly the same. But I think that something has changed. Because now God responds by giving Elijah a task. He says, go back the way you came. And we didn't read these verses, but he says, anoint the next kings. Anoint your successor. I wonder if what has changed is Elijah's tone. Maybe you think I'm reaching a little at that, and maybe I am, but, but he's stopped running, and he's not hiding anymore. And now he's moving towards something instead of just away. I wonder if what was fear before has become grief. And his grief is not misplaced. Things are not good. And he could not fix it. Elijah thought he was everything, saving the world, and then he thought he was nothing, good only for death. And now he gets the truth. He is loved. He is cared for by his God. And he is part of God's working in the world. He has things to do. But he is not the whole of God's working in the world. He will not fix it all. He will not save us all. And he is not in charge. He's just called to do the next thing. Go back, Elijah. Keep going. God's work will continue. It is not desperate. It is not a frenzy. There is time for Elijah to lose his way. There's time for him to travel all the way to Mount Sinai and time for him to travel back again. And the same is true for us, right? Things sometimes get really bad, but no matter what happens, It remains that God is good and God is working. It is not and never has been our job to fix the world or to save it. Nor could we ever do that if we tried. We are called only to join in God's good work and to do the next right thing. Right now there is a lot of grief in the air and a lot of unknown and a lot of pressure to figure out what's next. But it is not helpful to get burned out in our zeal and descend into despair. Friends, no matter how the events of this week or these last months or these last couple of years have weighed on you, rest, eat, listen to the spirit, do the next thing. 
Don't get overwhelmed or scared or frantic. Do good and don't put too much pressure on yourself. This work is not yours. It belongs to God. Last week, um, I said I was at the RCA Synod. I'm, it's kind of confusing, but I'm ordained in a different denomination uh, called the Reformed Church in America, uh, not the Christian Reformed Church, which is like almost the same. Anyway, uh, our synod was like really tame compared to what happened at the CRC Synod. Um, but there were still some really frustrating conversations, and I got in a fight with the people at my table. Uh, <laughs> I'm not very good at not arguing. Um, it resolved really beautifully in like the way that I hope the church would, like uh, the Holy Spirit was like, Jen, don't be so self-righteous, because some guy that I thought was totally wrong invited us to pray, and it, like everything was beautiful. Anyway, um, <laughs> those guys who I was arguing with, uh, did not change their minds. And even just from this like tiny thing, like an argument between three people at a table, I felt some measure of Elijah's despair. I was like, why can't I just convince them? Or why can't they at least see that this is a valid viewpoint? Like I don't need them to agree, but can they just understand it? Um, anyway, I was very frustrated, even after it resolved beautifully. And as I was like trying to calm down from it all, uh, the meeting got pretty boring, so I turned to like look at what my text would be to preach this week, and it was this, Elijah. Uh, but as I turned to my sermon, I just felt this deep peace, like my whole body just kind of calmed down. It was like the Spirit was saying, like this, here, you writing a sermon, that's what you do. Um, like you don't have to convince those guys or anybody else. You're just not in charge of this. You just do this. Not, that I, not to say that I don't have, still have those conversations or do other good things in this world or advocate or anything, um, but each of us has been given gifts, right? Each of you has a role to play. That doesn't mean you have to hear like the voice of God announcing a huge calling, though some of you may hear that. Uh, it might mean that you love the people who are next to you right now. It might mean that you pray. There's a bazillion different ways to serve God in this world. But ultimately, the, God, the work is God's work, not ours. My mentor, or whatever, a hero of mine used to say, we're not called to fix or save anyone. We are just called to love. And you know what else? It's okay if you get it wrong. If you burn yourself out and get cynical and overwhelmed and frantic and despairing like Elijah, it's okay. God will help you. You seek God in that place. Let God remind you that while sometimes God works in huge and amazing ways, just transforming people on the spot, much more often than that, the work is gentle and quiet. God's love is patient with us. And God, will, God woos us in gentleness. It is not the coercive force of the amazing all the time. Actually, ever. God does not coerce us. Like a mother speaking with her children, God bends low. Or a father, I should say, since it's Father's Day. God bends low. 
and sees us and hears us, encourages us, knows just where we are and just what we need. Run to God to be reminded of who you are and who God is and to be strengthened for the next thing. Our God can be found in the spectacular sometimes, but also in the dead ends and the pits and the hopelessness. From the fire to the earthquake to the wind to the sound of sheer silence, God works in many different ways. As I was thinking through this, I imagined the silence on Golgotha after Jesus breathed his last. I bet it was deafening. Maybe punctuated with weeping. I imagine the silence of the tomb. No one was even there to hear the stone get rolled away. Rest in God's grace, my friends. The world has already been saved.